Yeah, Vaughn? Well, episode 25, Two Twins in an Album, welcome. I think that by now, most of you that uh, tune in regularly to listen to us bozos probably have a fair idea as to the intro that you hear and that you've heard for the last 24 episodes. And for those of you that don't know, um, that is the voice of the great Peter Steele. And that is, believe it or not, it's a track from tonight's featured album and one that we'll dig into in a little bit more detail as we go on here. But episode 25, a little bit of a special one uh, for us in that, uh, you know, we see, <laughs> we see it as a bit of a milestone because, uh, when we started the old podcast here, you know, there were a lot of reasons for doing it. Uh, you know, we're going through the uh, pandemic and so forth. And, and we kind of wanted to do something to kind of have some fun every now and again. And uh, Nubs and I typically see each other quite a bit. But, you know, we've been doing this over Zoom, which obviously has been the means of interaction for many people. So, it gave us an opportunity to kind of regularly make sure that we spend some time together, which is always nice. Well, and not to mention, we haven't been able to play any gigs together. Yeah, exactly. And not being able to do shows takes away like 75% of our time together. It's true. And, and I think the second thing we were looking for, you know, a way to kind of stay relatively creative and, you know, to your point, nubs you know it was a good way while we can't play and we can't have gigs and we can't do what we do because we've mentioned before that we have an acoustic thing that we do and we have a, a band you know um that you know kind of a full band electric thing that we do and we get to the point where we are playing very regularly you know every couple of weeks we'd have something and so to have that suddenly go away you know i think that uh two twins in an album here kind of became a little bit of a creative outlet. But the reason I'm giving this, you know, illustrious history of how we kind of started things is because when we set out to do this, you know, there were just a few albums that we had in mind, you know, and as, uh, as I told Rupert Holmes in uh, episode 17, adventure was that type of an album, you know, something that's not as well known and, and something that we see as, you know, heralded and something that, you know, was important, but not a lot of people may know about. And we've also covered well-known albums that are deemed classics and we kind of wanted to dive into why. And so, you know, we're trying to kind of run the gamut here, but there's one album that I think is, and you touched on it at the end of the last episode, Nub, of one that if you were to kind of, you know, if we were to sit and kind of put some time into you know, our top 10 albums of all time. I got to think that this one would probably be if we were to kind of have a joint score, if you will, 
this one would probably be the highest between the two of us. And when we were talking about doing the podcast, it was kind of like, well, when are we going to do October rust? Is that going to be like episode one or, you know, (laughs) and then, you know, we were starting to map things out a little bit of kind of some of the albums we wanted to highlight. And this one just kept, it was kind of like inevitable. It's like, when are we going to do this? And we decided that if we were to make it to 25, which, uh, you know, when we first started out, I mean, you know, we joke about it, but we weren't even sure if we were going to make it to three that we were going to do this one. So we're here. We made it to 25 and nubs. I'm really looking forward to discussing this very special album and this very special band with you tonight. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate kind of the giving our listeners the brief history and, and genesis of the podcast, if you will. I, uh, the, <laughs> the other creative outlet that I've taken up during the pandemic is uh, oil painting. But my oil paintings are awful. I was going to say, I've yet to see any of these. And there's a reason for it. Are, are, you being, are you being serious? You have this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm being serious. Yeah. In, really? in, my, in my listening room downstairs where I have my entire vinyl collection and CD collection, I've set up a canvas and oil paint area. And yeah, that's one of the things that I've been creatively doing during the, the, the initial shutdown and lockdowns and things that we've had here in Michigan. But it's much more of a therapeutic thing than anything else. I mean, I'm not a good painter at all. So let me get this straight. You're, you're telling the, the podcast about this apparently secret hobby of yours before you even, you know, told me. Yeah. This is news. This is news to me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's secret because it's, it's, it's really not good. I mean, I'm not, I don't even really know what I'm doing, but well, I could have guessed, I could have guessed that. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly but but exactly, it's, yeah. uh, yeah. wow. So you've, you've done a very good job of keeping this, um, sort of a secret. Um, the, the problem is if you start talking about things like this, then people are like, Oh, well, let me see it. And then they look at it and it's like, Oh, that's, that's terrible. You know, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been like, I don't want to see it. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, so so uh, the, you- the nice part is, is that talking about music is something that comes a lot easier and more naturally than oil painting. It's been a fun and enriching and, you know, important thing during this really ridiculous time that we're all going through. Right. And so, so I appreciate that. I appreciate your perspective on it. If we did a power ranking, a combined power ranking for those of you who are familiar with sports, power rankings are sort of like a a current ranking, right? If you take out all the distractions and just put in all the context. That's like a power ranking. If you did a power ranking of our, you and I's combined favorite albums of all time, there's no question. October Russ would be number one. There's just no question. I mean, it would. And for many, many good reasons. And, and I look so incredibly forward to going through and diving through the reasons tonight for why that is. Well, listen here, Van Gogh, uh, we are going to, yeah, um, yeah. We're going to dive right into it because obviously when it comes to the nerdy deets and the uh, wonder stories and the track by track and everything that goes along with what we do here, um, this is, this one's gonna, this one's gonna have a lot of meat, a lot of, a lot of beef on this one. Like the front man of this band, very beefy. That's, beefy. That's exactly right. But first... As always, let's take you round and round. 
New Blaze, what have you been listening to when you're not painting masterpieces? The, yes, yes. The band King Crimson, speaking of masterpieces, its debut album, In the Court of the Crimson King from 1969, is considered to be kind of the prog rock masterpiece. And certainly, if you ask musicians, people really in the know about music, it would be considered one of the best albums of all time. So, Every few years, they just do some sort of reissue of it. You know, In the Court of the Crimson King is is this band's cash cow. and But all their stuff's so commercial. I don't understand. Yeah, why, right, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah. The, the latest installment of this particular re-released ridiculousness that's happened with this album is something called The Complete 1969 Recordings. And this is, I think, the fifth box set that King Crimson has put out in this particular series. It is a 26 disc CD box set of this one album of this one album. (laughs) King Crimson, a band that we'll dive into very soon on this podcast. Spoiler alert. Um, Secondly would be the Anthrax album for all Kings, which came out in 2016. Anthrax is a band that they're out of the four sort of pioneers of thrash metal. They're the one that I enjoy the least. So I'm trying to get into them a little bit because I love Slayer. I love Metallica. I love Megadeth. Anthrax has always been a band that it's been a little hard for me to get into, but they've actually put out a couple albums in the last few years that have been really outstanding. And For All Kings is probably the best thing they've done this decade. And the lastly would be uh, an album called Beyond the Shrouded Horizon, which is from Steve Hackett, who is the original guitarist of Genesis, who's got onto a pretty robust and quite prolific solo career. Um, the 2011 album on Inside Out Music is really good. And the reason why I'm getting into this one quite a bit is because it features Chris Squire on bass. Chris Squire, of course, from Yes. It's just running around for me. See, what is uh, spinning around for you? The first is from one of my favorite groups, that being Public Image Limited, led by the great John Linden, the rotten one. You know, I've talked about it a little bit before, but just the type of group where you can put all their catalog into one playlist and just shuffle it so many different eras so many different genres you know uh, this particular record is their 1992 effort which is called that which is not so this one had a bit of more of a kind of post-punk i suppose this was in the midst of grunge so this was kind of a bit more stripped down and straightforward pill which is which is always nice this was their last album before they took a rather long break, about 20 years before making their next record. So uh, never a bad time to pull out the pill. Um, Only thing better than listening to pill is listening to Johnny Rotten speak. Oh, the greatest. <laughs> Even the today. Greatest. Absolutely Even today. today. I mean, I was just listening to him, you know, a couple months ago talking about the, the state of affairs and it was great. It's like, you know, this guy just still just speaks his mind and could care less what anybody has to say or think about it, but in an intelligent way, not in a reckless yeah. way. And the world uh, would be a much, much better place if we had more Johnny Rottens. I, I would have really to agree. Would. Yeah, I would have to agree. And, you know, I, I never say public image. I say 
the public image. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, that's, you know. that's much better. Yeah, exactly. The second is just a little double album from 1980 called The Wall by Pink Floyd. So I think that your Pink Floyd kick that you were on for many, uh, many weeks uh, this last summer maybe rubbed off on me a little bit. And I'm kind of sifting through The Wall. It's a little bit of one of those albums that you always learn something that you kind of didn't know before, um, whether it's a specific layer or section or whatever it might be. So, so a little album called The Wall by Pink Floyd. And the third is Walk On by Boston. Obviously, this is their sort of, I guess, comeback work in a way back in the mid 90s and a very good effort. There's a little bit of chatter in the middle with the uh, with the Walk On medley and the all that stuff that goes on a little too long and takes up a few too many tracks, but you strip that out and you kind of get down to those five or six core album tracks and they're really good. Well, I guess we'll just stay in the mid nineties because uh, that's the focus of tonight. It's a little bit tough to kind of know where to begin on this because, you know, and I think you, I think you put it really well with the uh, power rankings you know, it's, it's just, it's just one that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to try to not be too gushy about this because yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit hard. It's almost like you, you kind of feel like you're talking about like one of your kids. <laughs> so if we sound like we're extremely biased and are having a very difficult time saying, too many bad things about this record or this band, then, you know, I guess just forgive us now, but typo negative, you know, a band that I think we can both agree is just dearly missed um, by the two of us, you know, getting the word back in 2010, you know, that Peter Steele had died, you know, pretty suddenly and pretty unexpectedly, you know, was probably as as hard and difficult and sad of a day musically than I can remember. You know, I mean, we were zero years old. Actually, we were like 11 months old or something when John Lennon was killed. There have been obviously several other, you know, musical tragedies since. Um, and even more recent as we're starting to lose some of our heroes from this era. But Peter Steele's death was a, was a real hard one. You know, I remember first thing I did was call Jew and it was, uh, it was a tough one and it's still a tough one, but you know, whenever this happens, you appreciate what you've got and what you've got is the ability to kind of revisit, you know, his music and revisit the important catalog of work from these guys. And you know, using uh, episode 25 here to kind of plow through what is uh, an extremely important piece of work from them is something I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to. Probably only rivaled in my, you know, musical world by uh, the death of David Bowie. And probably because both of those were so sudden, you know, Bowie was really secretive about his cancer fight. And he kind of treated his death like a work of art and nobody knew it happened until it happened. Peter Steele's thing was, was a whole different story. The only thing that was maybe a hair surprising was just that you could just tell the guy wasn't in great health, you know, and you could just tell in interviews and things like that, that he just didn't seem to be doing that well, but still shocking because of the nature of how he passed away and 
just the fact that there were still so many more typo shows at Harpo's for you and I to go to, you know, it, it's, he wasn't that old of a guy and we just loved him so much. So, um, so yeah, that, that, you're right. It, it, you know, we would have a soft spot in our hearts for typo, even if they were still together. But the fact that they're no longer able to do what they do is uh, makes that soft spot even softer. The cause of death was, was listed, you know, as a heart attack, as heart failure. And, you know, there've been kind of various theories on um, what led to that. He was a very, very big guy. And he was a guy that hadn't taken too good care of himself. He was actually going through a period of sobriety when he died and he was excited to make music. And, you know, they had just come off the Dead Again album, which I think creatively, you know, he was very, very proud of. And, you know, so it's a, it's a guy who is definitely trying to sort out creatively and lifestyle wise, you know, how sort of the back half of his life would go. And, you know, when he died, the band, I mean, there's no typo negative without Peter Steele. And I think that there are a lot of bands like that where you have somebody that basically impossible for the band to move forward. And certainly that was the case with these guys. Now that doesn't take away from the other members and we'll, uh, and we'll kind of dig into that a little bit, but the, the outpouring um, was just as impactful for many people who were unfamiliar with his work as anything else. It was almost like when, when Dale Earnhardt died, even if you weren't a NASCAR fan, like you noticed, it was like, wow, like this is, this really means a lot to people. And within the, you know, heavy metal community, you know, when Peter died, even if you didn't know the band that well, or weren't too familiar with their work, you really noticed it's sort of outpouring of grief and love and respect for what he brought to this community and what he brought to music from a creative standpoint, from a humor standpoint and from a uniqueness standpoint, because these guys were making music that had truly never been heard before. And I think that that's what we'll focus on a bit tonight is a lot of the originality of these guys, because, you know, there, there are very few bands out there that when you ask them for their two biggest influences, they say the Beatles and black Sabbath. Cause you know, the Beatles and black Sabbath, I think we can agree aren't terribly similar uh, per se. Ozzy will tell you his absolute musical hero is the Beatles. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, these guys were really able to, demonstrate quality direct qualities of both within their music and that certainly comes through very evidently here on the october rust record so unless you have anything else nub to kind of say uh i think we should get right down get right down and dirty with those nerdy deets you want some dirty October Rust was released on August 20th, 1996. It was the, you know, it was kind of the sophomore album, sort of, from a, you know, kind of major label standpoint. I mean, they, they had some early recordings that were uh, a bit unique, 
uh, I think we can say, but from a more sort of mainstream major label standpoint, this was really the follow-up to what most would sort of consider their debut in Bloody Kisses. Bloody Kisses kind of took the metal, doom, goth, whatever type genre you want to include by storm. Obviously, it was carried very heavily by some beloved typo classics. You know, Christian Woman and Black Number One stand out in particular. You know, these were MTV hits. These were songs that, you know, while they weren't necessarily radio friendly, got a lot of attention and were absolutely beloved by metal fans. So there was a lot of intrigue particularly after not just an album with these two very well-known singles, but a very unique record. You know, Bloody Kisses was like nothing anyone really had ever heard before in the way that, you know, the band utilized ambiance and tempos and, you know, sort of this doom metal type approach, which some had done, but nobody had quite done like this. And there was a lot of excitement Not necessarily, I wouldn't say from the heavy mainstream, but from those that were, you know, intrigued by Bloody Kisses as to what direction they were going to go on October Rust. It definitely needs to be said just how different Typo was compared to all of its peers. You know, they weren't metal enough to be considered like Metallica at that point. You could not compare Typo to Metallica. So they weren't metal enough to be metal and they they weren't melodic in a flowery way. I mean, their music was powerful. It was heavy. It was uh, heavy, distorted guitars. It was very treated vocals and huge bass sound. And so they were caught in between a bunch of different genres, which, which might explain why the direct commercial appeal wasn't there. You know, you weren't going to flip on the radio and hear typo negative. What radio would you have put them on? You know, but those who found them out kind of discovered the secret. And once you knew the typo secret, you were sort of all in. And so October Rust was an incredibly important album. It also came out at a time in the music industry where people were buying more music than ever. And CD was the format. October Rust is very much a CD oriented album. You know, the way that the album is constructed and the way it starts and the way it ends and everything in between, it's kind of your quintessential compact disc album. And uh, so it's it's very mid-90s. They did not make an album like October Rust before it. Well, there are certainly some references to Bloody Kisses. And they didn't make an album like it after, though the stuff that came after is certainly a nod to October Rust in a number of ways. And so it really stands apart. And that has so much to do with the vision of really the the two members, I would say maybe three members of the band that really made it all happen. I think part of what gave them the ability to kind of take this direction and do so very boldly was the fact that they really had a fantastic marriage as far as their record label goes. And not every band can say that, but you know, they were on Roadrunner Records, which really kind of specialized during this era uh, of these type of bands, which 
you know, we're a little bit more underground than some of the kind of grunge and in some ways sort of power pop stuff that you were seeing around this time. I mean, this was Life of Agony, Machine Head, you know, the, the label actually started in the Netherlands, which obviously is many know is a, you know, very much a hotbed for a lot of this early metal approach. And uh, one of the early successful bands they had on the label was King Diamond. They were actually the first band to uh, enter the Billboard Top 200 on Roadrunner Records. Uh, and Annihilator was another one. So, you know, these guys, I think, found the right home for what they were trying to do and found a label that really encouraged them, you know, to, to not just go out there and fit the metal sort of mold, but go out there and be unique. And that's certainly, I think, what you started to see here around this time from this band. Typo was the first Roadrunner band to get radio play. And a couple of years later, another band that we've focused on here on the podcast, uh, Slipknot, uh, was the first Roadrunner band to go platinum. So, and then obviously they eventually signed Nickelback. And, you know, so this is a label that showed a lot of intelligence as far as the bands they wanted and the ability to give these guys, you know, some creative freedom. And I think that's kind of a big sort of unheralded part of the October Rust story was the band being in a pretty good position with a good partner that gave them the flexibility to kind of go out there and be unique and and certainly flex their creative muscle here in 1996. Such an important point. Great observation, T. You know, Fear Factory, Sepultura, Roadrunner was a label that demanded credibility with the unique artists that it signed. And Roadrunner deserves a lot of credit for pushing metal into the new millennium. Typo did a good job of setting the stage for that by bringing some diversity into the sound. Roadrunner was always a diverse label, even if you go way back. I've got some records from Roadrunner records from the early 80s. Really cool stuff. I mean, really cool 80s metal that does not sound like the uh, 80s metal that most associate with. So typo kind of, they're, they're an important part of the story. Slipknot certainly were the elevators. You know, they're the ones that took Roadrunner to the next level. But yeah, typo negative, an incredibly important part of the Roadrunner story and Roadrunner, a very significant part of the typo negative story. So you're right. It does not always happen. In fact, most of the time it doesn't, but probably the, the perfect union between band and label for sure. No question. Let's talk about them a little bit, you know, because it's very important to understand the players here. Peter, we talked about, I mean, clearly the front man, the presence, the composer. He's certainly the one that did basically all the songwriting. So the creative force, the visual force, the vocal force. And let's say the look. And the look. The look. The guy didn't appear in Penthouse magazine because he's ugly. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, there are a couple of reasons he appeared in uh, Penthouse magazine. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Peter, um, just an extremely unique person. He's very, very missed. Now, the other guys are extremely important to this. And I think the first member you got to highlight is Josh Silver. You know, Josh and Peter kind of were, they were sort of like the odd couple. And I, and I really think that one would not have been the same without the other. I think Peter needed Josh for his vision, for his production skills, for his layering talent. Um, and Josh is the keyboardist, by the way. 
tremendously important to October Rust. Now, super important to all their work. You can tell was vital as far as developing a thick, layered, interesting, dynamic sound to this band, which probably wouldn't have come if it was just Peter's vision alone. And Josh, I would say, is also the primary producer of this record. Now, it's credited as Josh and Peter, but I think it's pretty evident from most of the sort of digging that you do on this record and really, you know, a lot of typos work that, you know, Josh was the really the one behind the board as far as uh, executing on a production sense. So really, you've got two band members that were the lead producers on this, and you can tell that both Josh and Peter had a very specific thing that they were looking for. One of the many things that's underrated about typo negative is the vision. They knew what they were going for in this unique sound, in this unique approach. For the most part, you know, whether you liked the composition or not, in all cases, they were able to get it. And that wasn't because they brought in some hotshot producer. And we've talked about that a lot in previous episodes where, you know, how can the color and the shape not sound great, you know, when you got Gil Norton at the helm? Or how can significant other not sound great when you've got Terry Date and Brennan O'Brien at the helm? I mean, but th- these were the guys in the band creating the sound and, and executing on production. And, uh, and that's a big part of it. Josh is a huge part of this. I'd also highlight Kenny Hickey. probably. Our, am I out on a limb here saying maybe our favorite member of the band? I don't think that's too fish. I I think he actually makes the difference in the band. He, he really brings something to the table that is in my opinion, the true difference. You know, every band has like kind of an X factor typos. X factor is who the hell are you going to bring in to play guitar? What are they going to sound like? Can they sing? Can they contribute a different vocal style? All those questions are answered when Kenny Hickey comes into this band, a true X factor. You take him out and typo is not the same. And we've seen that since, you know, in the projects that Kenny Hickey has done since very good, but not typo. So you know what you get with Josh, you know what you get with Peter, but it's Kenny's contributions that always took typo to the next level, whether that's a song or an album. Yeah, I've mentioned many episodes ago, I mentioned uh, Silver Tomb on Round and Round because they released their first um, full-length album, and it's a great effort. And part of what's great about it is Kenny's the lead vocalist. Kenny's vocals are very, very important to this band. Very important. Peter has the distinct voice. He has the that deep, you know, sort of growl that typo fans love and adore and appreciate, but Kenny's vocal contributions are really important. I mean, think about the songs. I mean, black number one comes to mind. I mean, that song ain't that song without Kenny. And there are a lot of moments in the band's catalog where that's the case. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about Kenny's vocals. Also a very, very um, innovative guitar sound with the kind of scratchy uh, gain that is generated the use of the kill switch on the guitar, which you hear a lot, the use of the magnetic pickups. I don't want to get too guitar nerdy, but you know, a lot of um, unique playing and interesting playing in this sort of down-tuned approach. So that's Kenny, huge part of this. Now, let's talk about the drums for a second. Johnny Kelly, 
uh, joined the band at the end of Bloody Kisses. Bloody Kisses actually had a drummer named uh, Sal Abruzio. Am I saying that right? Sal Abruzio. Just call him Sal. And uh, Sal went on to be in what band? I know you'll know this. Well, he formed a pale horse named Death. Yeah. Who's a great band. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to kind of carry on the type of legacy is to listen to uh, pale horse named death. They're great. Yeah. Now the, the drumming of typo negative is always a very intriguing topic because on October rust and pretty much on every album from bloody kisses until their second to last album, which was called life is killing me. The band used program drums. These weren't, triggers these weren't you know i mean they they these were drum machines the band used drum machines i i think that josh had a lot to do with programming assistance on the drums peter certainly had ideas and very specific directionals of what he wanted the drum sound to be i'm sure johnny had input uh, and probably more and more as the band went on but this was he had just joined the band, you know, relatively close to before October Rust was recorded. I would imagine it's hard to get a straight story on a lot of this drum stuff with the band, but I would imagine that Johnny's involvement in the recording was probably pretty limited, if I had to guess. Now, when they took this on the road, and certainly the first time we ever saw them in concert and every time since, Johnny's a great rock drummer and recreated the songs on stage really nicely and really like his playing style. But when you're looking at typo negative recordings, besides dead again, which was their last album and featured live drums. And you can tell because it's a completely different vibe. They use programmed electronic drums, but it was part of the vision. It was part of the, the sound and the ambience that they were going for. And it worked. So I know you as the resident drummer may have a thought on this and probably in most other cases, I would imagine you're not a fan of the idea of programmed drums in heavy rock music, but do you make an exception for these guys now? Oh, a huge exception. Yeah. Because number one, the, the drumming in typo negative needs to serve a purpose that's way, way different. Most metal bands, the drumming has to be human. There needs to be human element to it. The relentlessness of a drum machine is a huge part of the sound for typo. It just never quits and it's constant, and it's steady. And the one thing about Typo, when you saw him live with Johnny playing drums, is they weren't steady, right? I mean, he sped up and slowed down and sped up and slowed down, and that gave Typo's live show such a, a human and great feel, right? But on their albums, with kind of the epic tracks they were doing and some of the musicality there, you need a certain amount of steadiness. So the reality is I didn't realize they were programmed drums for years. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, you know? And that, that's a testament to how good of a job Josh did. And it's probably the best drum programming job I've ever heard because it fits the music so well. Uh, I don't see it as any detriment to the album. I see it as an enhancement. And to your point, that's how Josh and Peter were able to get their vision out, was to have full control over the rhythms. You know, they're so concerned with what's going on melodically that for them to be able to perfectly fit what they want to happen rhythmically with that. You need drum programming and they did a phenomenal job. I mean, it's very impressive what they did. Great to get that drummer's perspective on this. And I, I agree all around, you know, Johnny as important as his drumming, he kind of became, you know, sort of an external face of the band as far as media interviews and fan interaction. I mean, Johnny's a very 
likable, personable guy who's extremely comfortable talking to media and doing interviews and, and, and helping promote the band. I mean, he loved being in this band, clearly who wouldn't, but you know, Peter's a little, uh, different, you know, I mean, lovable and a very friendly guy and we'll get to it. I'm sure. And you know, Kenny was kind of a goofball. I mean, these are a bunch of guys from Brooklyn. Uh, I think is worth noting. These were a bunch of kind of smart assy guys who never took themselves seriously on anything. You know, <laughs> I don't think you and I have ever said this before in our lives, but probably should have taken themselves a little more seriously than they did. But it's part of why you love them. And Kenny was kind of a ball buster, and Josh was this really quiet, reserved guy and 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 Johnny was kind of the most normal, you know, and 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 a guy who really did a nice job of talking about the band and promoting things and all that. So he he actually took on a a pretty important role in being the mouthpiece of the band in a lot of ways. There are some incredible if you combed YouTube and other areas, I mean, videos of these guys on the tour bus and these guys screwing around backstage. I mean, what a hoot. I mean, they are, they are really, they're pretty nuts, but they are a, an, an interesting bunch of guys, hardworking guys from Brooklyn that had this mix of metal and chaos, but also very artistic and very thoughtful about the presentation of the band you know, whether it's color schemes or it's live presentation or it's artwork, there was a lot of vision, a lot of thoughtfulness here. And it's just a, it's just a fascinating group of guys. And if you don't believe us, you know, go look up some video clips of these guys, you know, screwing around or some of the various shenanigans on tour. Cause it's, it's quite a treat to kind of see these boys in action. I think really quick before we get to the wonder stories, it's worth noting because in the track by track, we'll focus mostly on the music, the absolute uniqueness of the way this album starts and ends, because I don't think it's anything that you've seen before or had heard before, or anyone's really done since typo had a thing where they utilize track one as kind of a joke. You know, on one album, they had a record skipping to try and screw the listener up to think that there was something wrong with the CD player. You know, they always use track one as kind of a goof, and they certainly did so here, where it's basically the sound of a speaker that has a bad connection, a bad ground connection. It's actually called bad ground. And so they they often basically used the first tracks of their albums to screw with the listener. Which again is just more of this wise guy, smart assy Brooklyn stuff that you saw a lot from these guys. And then track two, which is untitled, is the band thanking everybody for buying the album. I mean, they're just kind of sitting there hanging out and they decided that they were going to use track two to, to give this really warm, heartfelt thank you to fans for buying the record and saying, we hope you enjoyed it. In fact, why don't we play it real quick? Just because it's so unique and so different. But after you, you get kind of screwed with on, on bad ground, which sounds a little something like this. Okay. So you hear, the, you hear that for about 30 seconds and then this is track two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On. 
Hey, we hope you enjoyed our little joke there. This is Peter. This is Johnny. Kenny. And Josh. We just wanted to take a minute to thank you for picking up our latest recording of October Rust. Yeah, we spent a couple of months getting uh, high working on it. We hope you enjoy it. Now, when did you ever heard a band do something like that? I mean, that's that's track two of October Rust. It's super cool. It, it's very typo. Just being against the grain. You know, it's almost like they wanted to do everything that no one else thought was possible. Right. And so there was just so little pretension to anything they did. And they underestimated their own brilliance. You know, if there's one thing that you could say, it probably wasn't the best career move for them to be such kind of humble guys, like you mentioned, but they were because it's who they were. They were never putting on an act or being anybody other than who they were. So yeah, they're just, I, I just love everything about the way they chose to uh, start the album and remind people that, Hey, you know, we're grateful for those of you that have taken the time to buy this and listen to it. You know, it's very cool. Did it kill you to not go right into track three? <laughs> yeah, that was tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was pretty tough. That's tough. Um, that's maybe the first time that, you know, you cut track two and you don't get that track three, boy, I'm kind of yearning for it right now. Track three is kind of good. It's okay. Yeah. It's all right. It's, it's all it right. It can do a few things. Yeah. Indeed. Can't wait to get to that. But first, let's do our wonder stories. Nubs, when it comes to typo negative, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode of just wondrous stories on the band, but I know you've got a couple of cool ones. Uh, What do you got? Well, T, part of the fun of doing wonder stories is we get to bring up these, these characters of our past. And I don't know if it's anything like you, but typically it's people that I have not thought about for, you know, decades. And so one of those characters for us was when we were in high school, we went to a a small high school. Uh, You know, you kind of had to take your pick of who was down with good music and things like that. One of the characters we came across, we'll just call him Jeff P. Jeff P was this big dude and, and he did the greatest Peter Steele impression you've ever heard. And this was right around the time of bloody kisses and the song Christian woman. And so my earliest memories of typo is Jeff P all seven foot of him walking around the halls of our high school singing across upon her bedroom wall, you know, and doing the whole Peter Steele thing. And the song that actually did it for me was not Christian woman and was not black. Number one is a very obscure song on bloody kisses called sets me on fire, which has this sort of glorious organ keyboard intro by Josh silver. And just hearing that I was like, Whoa, you know, this group is really unique and doing something that I've never heard before. And so got more and more into the sounds of bloody kisses. And by the time that by the time October rest came out, I was already really enthusiastic about the album and looking forward to hearing it. And, you know, it, it kind of was the launching pad of getting into this group, but well, you kind of broke the seal on this. So uh, why don't we, uh... <laughs> yeah, yes. Across upon her bedroom wall from which she will fall. 
an image burning in her mind and be between her thighs. Here we go. I mean, uh, yeah, that was pretty good. Thank you. I mean, it's hard to, hard to know when to come in. Well, I don't know. Since we did it, I guess we'll, let's see here. Maybe we should just go ahead and she's in love with herself. She likes the dark, the dark on her milk white neck the devil's mark now i got it down now it's all hallows even the moon is full oh will she trick or treat i can't roll my tongue like he does i bet she will all right, let's see if I got this. I can't do Kenny. You can't go out to show when I am black. That's good. And I am black. All right, here we go now. Come on. Black, 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 black number Yeah. Oh, the next line is great. The little wolf skin boots. <laughs> <laughs> the words that are kind of amazing. Yeah. I'm kind of bummed I didn't miss the true Kenny intro because when he does that, yeah, you want to go out. Yeah, and on Christian Woman, I got to say that you missed the, oh, you know. Yeah, you're right. You, you yeah, just totally. It's like I'm waiting for it and it's like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's only yeah. one typo, you know. Yeah, thank, thank God. Sure as hell isn't us. You know, but uh, black number one live is an experience, you know, in so many aspects of a typo set. I mean, a lot of songs we'll cover tonight for sure, but uh, black number one live, they always played it last. And that, that was always, that was always kind of the big one, you know, but one aspect of the wonder story that I have to share uh, really comes back to a date that I will always be just so thankful for and that is november 5th 2000 which happened to be my second typo negative show but the first time i ever saw them headline this was at al rosa villa in columbus ohio and i was a junior in college they came on the world coming down tour and my buddy oliver and i went and 
just were completely, you know, blown away by the set. And the band was really seemed to be at a high point in terms of playing live at this point. And at, you know, it was college and life was pretty free at that point. So I remember telling Oliver, Hey man, let's just wait afterwards and see if we can, you know, maybe meet the guys, you know, and I had no clue whether that was even possible or not, but we saw some people kind of gathered around outside of Albrosa Villa and we're just like, okay, let's wait. Let's just see what happens. And these guys seem to know what they're doing. And so let's wait around. And we must've waited for a solid hour and a half. And uh, at right at the point where we we're thinking about maybe leaving out comes Kenny Hickey, you know, and he stumbles out and he's got a cigarette in his mouth and, and he signs all of our stuff and we talk to him and he's a super cool guy. And Johnny Kelly comes out. And of course he's the real personable one of the group. And, and out comes Josh Silver, and he's kind of standing off on his own, doing his own thing, but very kind and very gracious. And then last to come out is, of course, the man, Peter. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I'm meeting Peter Steele, you know, and he, he, of course, is greeting people and signing stuff and just being the absolute, you know, nicest guy you could imagine. And so I, I go up to him and I hand him my shirt. I had gotten a shirt at the show and he's signing my, my shirt. And he also signed my ticket as well, which was very cool. And I said, Peter, just want to say, man, just great show tonight. And he looked right at me and sort of in this almost grandfather kind of way, he said, it was only great because you were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classic. And, you know, all the moments that I will forget. From the last, you know, 40 years of being on this planet, that is one that I just still vividly remember. It was just so awesome. And how many times a week do we, whether it's even contextual or not, say to each other, well, it was only good because you were there. Exactly. Like it's such (laughs) a part of our lexicon, you know, and I've told that story so many times and Oliver was right there and he's down with it as well. And so it was just so cool. It was, it was like the perfect night, you know, it was a great show. It was a nice November night in Columbus, Ohio, and the band came out and they just could not have been, you know, more genuine, authentic guys. And not to mention the concert was incredible. I mean, they just were firing on all cylinders. They put a really, a really exceptional set of songs that night. And I remember world coming down. The title track was, was a real high point of the evening. So, and, and, you know, we covered a lot of it in the intro, but this is a band that's just extremely important to me and extremely important to us. And, you know, no matter what happens in the future, whether they win over new listeners or not as a legacy band, they'll always be one that's uh, a real keeper for us. All right. See, well, that, that was a wonder story full of stories and singing and singing and stories. So uh, since my voice is almost gone, I want you to take it away. What's, what's your type of wonder story? Yeah, I think we'll, I think we'll hang up the singing for today, but uh, kind of piggybacking on yours, I actually have also a person from the past I want to shout out. And that's, uh, that's Deb G, who was a huge oh, yeah. fan yeah. of, uh, of October Rust. And actually, this is going back to right around this time, it was probably about 97, drew me this beautiful picture of the cover. And I actually, I kept it for years and years. I don't even know if she knows this. And I framed it and I have it up in my studio here where 
do a bunch of recording and playing and where we record the old podcast here. So I actually have a little framed sketch that Deb G, very talented artist and obviously great taste in, uh, in music. Um, I really have two typo moments and they're really revolved around, you know, shows. You know, I did discover this album pretty early. You know, it was shortly after it came out. And I think what drew me to it actually was the, the album cover because it was that similar cornered text format that Bloody Kisses had. And it was a really cool cover with the, 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 the vines and the over the black background and the, the orange text. I was like, that's cool that they kind of stylized this the same way as their previous work. Little did we know that the next five albums thereafter would be stylized yeah. in the same way. Cause a lot, again, of, a lot of green, a lot of orange. Yeah. And, and that same corner text. Cause you know, these guys clearly uniformity was interesting to them and it was part of their artistic uh, approach. Man, I remember popping in this album and just, you know, I, 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 we'll get to it in the track by track, but just so many special moments. So discovering the album was fun, but, you know, probably the two of the greatest typo memories that I have, the first is seeing them for the first time, which is at OzFest 1997, where they were basically, you know, touring October Rust and they took a couple months throughout the summer to join. It was a great OzFest. It was Machine Head, Pantera, Ozzy. You know, it was a really, really good lineup, really strong. And Typo played kind of a late afternoon set, um, which was the first time I ever got to see them. And then the last time we got to see them, which was probably, I don't know, if we did our power rankings similar to albums on sort of nights together, you know, we were with groups a lot for shows and for different things, but for just moments that you and I had just us experiencing something or having a epic night out or whatever, you know, there've been a few, but we would probably rank the Halloween show in uh, on October 31st, 2009 as a high point. It was such a fun night. We were dressed up as uh, airplane pilots. It was just a fun night all together. And then Typo came out and just delivered an absolutely incredible show. And they had struggled for many years on stage. You know, when they were touring Life is Killing Me, Peter was into some substance abuse and things that were really affecting his live performance negatively. And listen, Peter didn't always have great nights. You know, it was kind of hit or miss a little bit, you know, where he's he was on some nights, he was off some nights. Like I said earlier, this was a period where he was, you know, kind of finding some sobriety in his life. And I think he was really committed to performance and improving what had been previous to that, you know, over a few years span, not his best moment as far as, you know, live performance, as far as how he sounded vocally and his playing and his overall kind of demeanor and energy on stage. And he just was, the guy was just on fire this night. And little did we know that, you know, I guess it ended up being seven or eight months later that we were going to lose him. But thank goodness we saw that last show in Detroit, that last Halloween show at Harpo's, a really, really special night. And a few of the songs they played were just incredible, uh, particularly a couple that are off this album. So very, very memorable kind of bookended shows of seeing them at the OzFest in 1997 and then seeing them on Halloween night 2009, just months before, you know, Peter left us. Both very, very special memories um, 
regarding this band. So even more than anything else, T, and the, the show was amazing. <laughs> that actually was the final typo negative live performance. Yeah. It, it's a sad thing, but also a pretty incredible thing that you and I both saw this band's final live show. That's something definitely to cherish. And I know you and I both do. I am just so happy that we went to that show. Oh, and yeah. I remember building forever up. grateful that we did that. It was Halloween night. And like, there were some other options. I remember there were some other things going on and get togethers and whatnot. It was never like a serious consideration not to go to the show, but I remember there were some other options and it's just one of those things where you always go see a band if you can always. And, and you know, now we should all have this perspective after, you know, we're all about to go a year plus without being able to go to a live show. But man, if you have the chance and you can make it go, Cause you just never know what's going to happen next. You know? Yeah. It's a great point. It's a great point. And a very, very special night for the both of us, probably one of our most memorable um, concert nights of all time. And that's saying a lot considering some of the stuff that we've been able to experience musically together. All right, Nub. Well, I think it's time that we dig in here. I don't know if this is going to be like easy or like the hardest track by track ever because there's, you know, so much to say, um, but we will, uh, we will do our best here to kind of, to keep it moving and keep it, uh, keep it keeping on here. But uh, really excited to get to the track by track of October rest. Let's do it. So we're going to forego, you know, we already gave you Bad Ground and then the uh, the untitled track, uh, the the thank you for purchasing this record, which is, I just still think is just the greatest thing ever. Uh, and we're going to take you right into kind of the true opener uh, of October Rust. And I think most can agree that uh, have any sort of connection or familiarity with this album whatsoever an incredibly special track in Love You to Death. It's, um... I mean, <laughs> I think it's one of the prettiest songs ever written and performed. Um, you know, it's a very haunting intro that kind of takes you into this driving verse section um, with a pre-chorus that's really sort of a single guitar note channeling their inner Neil Young where Kenny's riding on the snowed and Peter's kind of playing this chromatic progression downward. He was very good at arranging around chromatics and the pre-chorus of this song really exemplifies that. And then into this chorus, that's just, you know, rather unforgettable as far as um, sort of the mood and the um, kind of pop sensibility really of it, which you see a lot on this record. They've, you know, they've admitted that, you know, they were trying to be catchy trying to be poppy, trying to be memorable. And they have that Beatles influence and that Beatles background. These guys are not afraid to be, to display pop elements in their music. And they do that 
a lot throughout their whole catalog, but probably more so in October Rest than anywhere else. And you really get a sense for that here with Love You to Death. I've never met anyone, and we've certainly spent plenty of time and energy, you know, getting this album in as many hands of some of our peers and friends and music appreciators possible. And I've yet to come across anybody that at least gave this album a a fair chance and didn't come away saying, man, that love you to death track is really something special. Yeah. You kind of just nailed it. If you don't believe that this is sort of one of the best rock pieces of music ever made, just play it for somebody. Just sit down and play it for somebody who's never heard it. And they will be at the least impressed and at the most, you know, really blown away. You mentioned a lot of the elements. You were dead on with all those. But to me, the magic of the song really is in the Am I Good Enough for You section, the kind of breakdown. And then when it gets into that and then reaches that high point where Peter's vocals go up, you know, the, in that Am I Good incredible. Enough for You referring Yeah, uh, incredible. That That is just as good as it gets. And when you, when you pile that on top of a, a beautiful chorus, a verse that has some anxiety to it, you know, these verses kind of capture you in a whole different way. The way that it all just opens up into the chorus and then further opens into the, am I good enough for you part? It's magic. It's just magical, you know? And like I said, you don't believe me. That's fine. Play it for somebody, play for somebody, get their reaction. And I bet you they'll be, you know, I bet you they will have a, a, an almost immediate respect for this particular piece. It's true. And it, and it holds up extremely well, you know, and you really can't say that about a lot of quote unquote metal music from this time period. And even some of typos catalog, you know, you can say that some of it's a little out there and doesn't quite hold up 20, 25, 30 years later. Um, but this one sure does. I always think of our older brother who we've mentioned and he's a pretty, you know, he's a tough sell on a lot of music that sometimes we get really into his knee jerk sometimes is to sort of be critical of it or go, Oh, typo negative. Aren't they those like goth guys? And, you know, and, and I think when I first brought up when we were really both of you and I first kind of introduced him to typo early it was sort of like, eh, okay, whatever guys. And then it was like one day he called us and it was like, oh my God, love you to death. Incredible. Like it was like the, the light bulb went on, you know, it's almost like he just finally listened to it to your point, you know? And when anybody does ride out this full seven minute, nine second masterpiece, everyone to your point generally comes out of it with the same conclusion. So. So you start off with that and uh, you're kind of like, wow, did these guys peak a little early and let's see how this plays out. And uh, things continue on with uh, track four here, a unique track on the record, which is Be My Drudas. Typo gets pretty up-tempo a lot on this album. And on Bloody Kisses, there were... I mean, Christian Woman is a really 
slow track and there were a lot of sludgy doom metal in some cases extremely under tempo stuff that's intentional to create that mood this is a pop song i mean if you really kind of pick it apart and look at the the main lick and look at the vocal line over it um you know this is one that uh has tremendous pop sensibility to it now he gets a little bit you know with the breakdown in in sort of his uh very uh sexual literal you know um line there is not my favorite part of the record i kind of wish that they would have maybe just not done that because i think it sort of taints what otherwise would just be a really cool jammy kind of song but you know looking past that uh, because that's just Peter being Peter. And sometimes I think he was looking to, you know, kind of startle you a little bit with a thought or a lyric that certainly would be a little bit more literal than you might hear from some others. He was a very blunt guy who would rather provide the uh, the detail and the uh, sort of literal lyric rather than being metaphoric. He just kind of said what what he said and be my Judas is a good example of that. But all in all, I think it's kind of a nice up-tempo song, especially after sort of the power and feeling and atmosphere of Love You to Death to kind of bring it down a little bit to something that's in its essence fairly simple here with Be My Drudas. And it's built around a riff, which is not typical of typo. You know, they're really not like a riffy yeah. metal band or rock band. The whole <laughs> in-between section in the ending is, you know, the the uh, would you consider that double meaning of the... Uh, I'll do anything. You know, I don't think there's any double to it. <laughs> it's pretty singular and pretty literal. But cool riff and uh, sonically, I think a, a good sounding song. I think this this song is more about the production than anything else. Particularly during those breakdowns, you could hear some some neat stuff that Josh is doing in the keys. But uh, yeah, "Be My Drudas" is a nice in between. It's not a song that like you, you know pull up regularly and listen to on its own. But uh, but a solid in between track that really sets up the, the the things that would follow pretty well. The true moment for me, because you realize "Love You to Death" is great, and then you get through "Be My Judas," and it's like, okay, cool. But the true moment for me that we were really in for a ride here, and it was first listen. I mean, this was not this did not take multiple spins. When I got to track five, I realized that this was something different. You know, this was something special, and that's Green Man. Just one of the many just gorgeous progressions on this record. This is an album all about swirling layered progressions that's what's happening here and you know yeah peter puts great vocal melodies over it and josh puts great keys and synth and different elemental layers over it and kenny treats everything really nicely from a guitar standpoint here where he showed that he's not doesn't need to just go out there and rip a bunch of you know baritone level power chords he's really riffing and picking and and giving these songs the treatment that they need and green man to me pulls it all together and then it's cool that the meaning is really it's really interesting peter before you know typo negative kind of started paying the bills worked as a 
parks and recreation, um, basically like an outdoor type of a worker coordinator for the city, the city um, of Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, he was doing landscaping and, you know, street sweeping and getting things ready for various kind of parks and rec activities for people. And he said that he developed this real love for nature, uh, which is interesting in, in Brooklyn because obviously it's, you know, there's more concrete than there is nature, but, you know, he, he found it and he says that he just absolutely loved that job. In fact, he said that once the music thing fell through, he was probably going to go back and keep doing it. And Greenman is all about that. You know, he's singing all about the beauty that he sees in kind of pure nature of changing colors and changing spectrums and changing weather. And it's a really perfect lyrical treatment. And I guess they used to call him the green man, you know, because he wore this big green, I think it was like a jumpsuit of like protective gear when he would do this, this fairly blue collar job. And he was just this giant with this big green thing. And so that's where green man came from. And it became sort of Peter's nickname for a lot of people. Um, so cool context to the song over a musical backdrop that really pulls it together. I just think that Green Man's a very special track. It's like Love You to Death, you know, brilliant bookends. The intro is is so pure and it just captures you. You know, Peter's singing this very earnest kind of voice. And then the ending with the oohs and ahs, you know, just kind of a, you know, almost like a sunset sort of feel to the way the song ends. What's what's really underrated about Peter Steele and really all of Typo, you got to say, is kind of the romanticism. He's a very romantic guy. And, you know, this isn't a song about love and girls, although we'll get to that a little bit later in the album. But he's romanticizing his experience in this job that he held dear. Yeah. It's a very, very introspective, romantic guy who's willing to kind of think a little bit deeply as he makes some lyrical contributions. Now, this is also the guy who like wrote kill all the white people, you know? So clearly there's also a, there's a sense of humor there and there's, there's certainly a lack of pretension as we covered earlier, but there's also this sheer romanticism that comes through in this album, probably more than any of the other albums typo did. Well, you're absolutely right. And you know, what's special about Peter as a composer and as an artist is the ability to go from something that is fairly romantic. And I think, you know, you put it very nicely there into something that is um, the opposite. And when you dig into track six, initially it sounds kind of like one of those slow sludgy type bloody kisses songs. But as you go along, you know, nearly seven minutes long here, you know, you realize that there's a lot more feeling a lot more melody, a lot more layering, and a lot more thoughtfulness, frankly, to this than anything they had done on the previous album. It's a really, really nice track coming off of Green Man here with Red Water Christmas Morning. is an incredibly emotional song. Peter wrote this about his father who passed away on Christmas Day. 
um, when he was, you know, relatively young. So really kind of singing about the grief of that, but tying it in with this, you know, it's called Christmas morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, right? And kind of tying in with this feeling of sadness. And you can actually hear two uh, Christmas carols, you know, worked into this. You can hear the carol of the bells, which is worked in from Josh and a slide guitar, both in the intro and in the middle section. And then they work in God rest ye merry gentlemen, which is very typoized there in the, in the middle part um, when things kind of break down, but it's a real story being told here. And boy, I love the feeling of it. I love the vocal Pete's just like killing it on the chorus. And just like pretty much every other song on October Russ, what an outro, you know, Kenny is playing this bend solo that is just perfect again over this beautiful progression. And then they sort of take you out with the main lick, a really, really, really well put together song here in Redwater. This is one that takes a little time to appreciate, you know, even when we were teenagers, this was not like the one we were flipping to, right? It was like green man and love you to death and wolf moon. But this is one of those hidden gems that, that over time you're like, wow, the atmosphere of the song is just incredible. And again, it brings out the, the spaciness of typo because that's another club in their bag. You know, they created music with some space, some atmosphere, psychedelia. You know, it wasn't like a thing that when you first listen to Typo Negative, you don't think about psychedelic sounds. It's not what immediately comes to mind. But the further you get into them, you're like, wow, this band is incredibly psychedelic. And Red Water is about as good of an example of that as it gets. I love the vocal. I think it's really powerful. And Josh's keyboard work is just key. You know, it really paces the song along and the way that the, you know, the Christmas music is being sprinkled in. And it's like a slow mover that over time with a lot of listens, you really grow to uh, appreciate and and kind of gain a deep love for. It's also not obvious, you know, like I said earlier, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the other songs in this album, when you get into October Rust, become a little bit, I would never say overdone because they never get old, but I could still hear things in this one that I I've not heard before when I listened to it. And that's a good thing. You know, that's always a sign of a complete album. It's, it's really well said, you know, love you to death and green man. They kind of, they kind of jump out at you. You don't have to seek them out. Whereas red water, you know, it does, it does take some digging, but I'll tell you what, once you, once you absorb it and once you get an idea of the structure and you get an idea of the feeling of the whole thing, it's a, (laughs) it's a damn good song. It's a damn good song. I think you make a great point too on psychedelia. And, you know, musically, I think this song is just right out of 60s style psychedelic rock with the organ bit and kind of the overall feel of it musically. With some interesting, uh, again, don't have to really think through a lot of metaphors and whatnot to get an idea of what Peter's talking about. It's a menage a trois, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Peter Steele's interested in on this one. My girlfriend's girlfriend.
Maestro. Always choosing the best part of the song, man. I love it. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend's girlfriend is not, I mean, I don't think it's your favorite. It's not my favorite, but that middle part, man, alive. It's like, you know, it's this, it's this kind of, um, you know, it's this very dumb rock, dumb rock. Can it's a little dumb rocky. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. this sort of straightforward thing. And uh, the, the cover to the single is hilarious. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, it's Peter just laying on top of these two chicks and they have these big smiles on their faces. I mean, it's, it's like as blatant as it gets, um, you know, the main kind of riff and lick. I mean, I do think there's some kind of stripped down psychedelia in there, but that middle section is really what pays it off. You know, I think. Kind of a stunning middle section. It comes out of nowhere, really. Because it is sort of a dumb rock song. Yeah. Yeah. This was clearly, I'm not saying it was a conscious attempt at this, but it it clearly the the commercial song, right? It was the first single off the album, I believe. Right. And there was a a CD single for it, as you mentioned. And so you can't blame the guys for writing something a little bit catchy and commercial. But yeah, when I listened to this song, my girlfriend's girlfriend. It's really just an avenue to get to the middle section. And then unfortunately comes out of that and just goes right back into the regular song, but it's, it's a pretty short hitting jam too. So it's fine. I mean, it's not a bad song by any means, but when you compare it to the rest of the album, it, it, it feels a little shallow, right? Yeah, I would agree. But you know, again, if, if this is the low point, you know, particularly something, and you're right, that middle section does come out of nowhere because you're kind of thinking, okay, this song's okay. You're a couple minutes into it. And then you get kind of hit over the head with this gorgeous middle part. It's like, wow, these guys really did leave it all in the field here. Because if that's the low point, which which it could be, could be argued, maybe the cover song that comes in a couple tracks, but still pretty damn good. And you're right. I think going for some single sensibility, some pop sensibility here, that, you know, I think worked for some. There are a lot of typo fans that really love that song. But then we get back into atmospheric. I almost feel like uh, this is sort of part two to Green Man. Uh, similar intro. You got an acoustic guitar, which at this time was pretty rare for typo, but you saw it three times on this record. And this is the second time you see it with a classic, straightforward Peter Steele lyric over a beautiful song in Die With Me. really pretty song i do think it has you know some similarities to green man you know that is sort of drawn out a little bit more melodic um but similar elements here that you're getting it's seven minutes 13 so song that certainly takes you for kind of a nice long ride with good sections you know again layering uh acoustic guitar layering keyboard layering atmospheric great stuff and die with me what do you think Dumb? Die With Me was my favorite song of the album for a period of time. It shifted as it probably has for <laughs> yeah. you too, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but kind of Green Man was your song that really captivated you and sort of addicted you to this album. Mine was, was Die With Me. And I, I connected with its almost sort of teenage love kind of thing. I do remember this song making me think about girls and such. You know what I mean? And it was a moment where you don't always connect with typo lyrically. 
right? Most of the time, the typo lyrics are something to take you to a place. This one was sort of in your face explicit about what Peter was really singing about. And so that was kind of important. But, you know, even decent lyrics are nothing without music behind it that's driving it. And it's just such an emotional song musically. You know, you can you could tell the intricacy that went into it. But it's not without its typo moments. You know, the do, 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 you know, that, that kind of where it gets lower. And it's a great mix, like this entire album of the dark and the light, you know, and so many bands post-October Rust came along and tried to copy that. The new metal movement was all about kind of combining melody with, with heaviness. But this is done in a way that mixes sort of doom aspects with this brightness as well. I mean, this song is simultaneously the darkest thing on the album, but as well as the most hopeful thing on the yeah, album. And yeah, that's, that's true. That's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty extraordinary balance that they seem to be able to find regularly in this album. It is. It's a good point. I think, you know, it really displays the dichotomy that you get often from typo. And sometimes that's humor mixed with doom. Sometimes that's romanticism mixed with heaviness, right? I mean, there, I agree with that on Die With Me. It's, a, it's probably the most atmospheric song on the album, and that's saying quite a bit when you consider its competition. We then get into something a bit more straightforward, probably the, I, I would say probably the least memorable track on, uh, on October Rust, but kind of is the in-between from coming off of this string of just unbelievable previous four tracks uh, and then taking you to the end, which obviously kind of regains some of its power, but it's a little bit of an interlude song here in burnt flowers fallen. gained an appreciation for this one over the years i think um you know i think it's one of those kind of like you described where you weren't as dug into it as some of the others it's a cool kind of main chugging rhythm that's going on at the bottom of it but it's pretty straightforward and certainly not it's it's going to fall toward the bottom as far as the memorable nature of this album. Now, I don't know if that's because of its competition or because of any particular shortfalls with the song. It's a little long. I think it could have been a little bit less than over six minutes because um, the structure of it is, is actually pretty simple, but there's some cool dynamic stuff when you kind of strip it down into the, you know, some of Kenny's guitar work and those type of things happening. So like it, don't love it. Where are you at on uh, burnt flowers? I, I'm at like a full au contraire easily in the top tier of songs for me on October. Ah, okay. okay. I love Burnt Flowers Fallen. Just pay attention to what's going on rhythmically. Sometimes the rhythm opens up, sometimes a little more closed. And the breakdown with the piano and all of the flowers. I mean, God, like, are you kidding me? I'm all in on that. And then the ending, man, with the, the high falsetto vocal. I mean, just beautiful stuff, like stuff that nobody would even think about doing. This, this is one that, you know, now this one at this point is right up there with all my favorite moments on this album. Well, good. That's good to hear. I mean, I think you make a good point on Kenny's vocal, uh, which is all over this thing, hitting some of those high marks, hitting some of those falsetto marks, some of those harmony marks. 
very, very important. And I think a lot of what helped shape this October Rust sound was his ability to kind of capture and complement some of those vocal lines and some of those harmonies and even some of the solo parts, right? I mean, there's plenty of solo parts, just like any other typo effort. Kenny's voice, extraordinarily important to this band as a whole, very important to this record. And you see it throughout just a bunch on October Rust and beyond. Well, if this one isn't in your uh, top tier, then I think we can all agree that you probably need your head examined. Uh, This is in praise of Bacchus. Now we're gonna um, we're gonna play a part from the back half because, in a way, this is two different songs. In fact, in some areas, it's been listed as "In Praise of Bacchus" as well as "Together Burn." So it, it really is in in my mind, it's it's sort of a two parter. I think that was actually sort of in the band's mind, but the main part that we just kind of went through takes you through this, you know, really nice clean kind of strumming chord progression from Kenny with a great vocal over it that kind of takes you into this heavier verse section. But the song really, I think, culminates with this part two. And and here's a little piece of that, uh, which they have referred to in, in composition as a together burn, but it's really kind of the uh, back half and sort of, um, you know, outro piece within In Praise of Bacchus. It's just sick. It's just sick. It's so melodic. You know, you've got the guitar kind of high part layering over it. Kenny was so good, or Peter, if it was his composition, at, you know, kind of utilizing these repetitive layers over changing progressions. It's a, it's a very musically outstanding section with a lot of different elements working together on top of a really good vocal from Peter. But man, this song is a ride. When they play this one live, it just tears your head off. I mean, it is just an unbelievable kind of lead up to this, you know, closing piece, which is really pretty beautiful and pretty moving both on the record. And and when they play it live, this is a song that these guys love to play live and certainly people love to hear. Yeah. I think aside from black number one, Christian woman, probably love you to death. This is a song that they play live the most. I mean, we saw them on so many different tours in different time periods. Bacchus was always a mainstay of the set. So clearly they liked it too. And how could they not? It just, it just gives you chills. It really does. If it doesn't, you're not human. And it's sort of a perfect song, you know, just structurally um, because of the different sections and the way that they're pieced together and the smooth way that they going to each other. So yeah, Bacchus is about as good as it gets. They're showing off at this point, right? I mean, it's, (laughs) what is it? Track 10 or something. And they're just like, okay, well, 
we've taken you through this amazing ride. I mean, th- th- this album would have been one of the best albums ever before Bacchus. Oh, you yeah. know? I mean, at this point, like your eyes are popping out of your head. It's like, what yeah. is going on here? You yeah. know, yeah. this Bacchus to me is just so original. You never really have even since heard a song like this, the way it's, the way it progresses, the chord changes, the progressions, the sort of two-part nature of it. It's just, it's got a lot of very, very original, unique elements to it that make it a real high point on this record. And that's against some pretty stiff competition. So I guess now's the time where we decide, very interested in your take on this. Did we need the Neil Young cover? Did we need it? I don't know. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. Cinnamon Girl. One of the cool things about Typo, they had a real, and you can hear it even today. I mean, you hear Kenny talk today, you hear Peter back in the day. These guys had a real appreciation for music. They loved music now. These were not a bunch of guys just trying to go out there and play loud and play metal and see if they could push the metal boundaries. These guys were very musical in what they appreciated, what they listened to and what influenced their music directly. Right. So, I mean, it's cool putting, you know, uh, paying a little homage here to Neil Young and, and doing a, I think a nice version of cinnamon girl. Maybe we needed this on the record. Otherwise it just would have been like so intense that, you know, it's like, you're just so moved that it's hard to like keep your feet on the ground. But um, so maybe it it serves a purpose and kind of emotionally and and energetically kind of getting you back to base, especially before you wind up here for the last, you know, essentially two tracks. But what do you think? Nob, you think it was a good move to go with this or could have gone without it? Or what do you think there, bud? That's a great move. I mean, you can't just like, pack the thing with just uh, epic after epic, you know, it gives you a nice little relief, but it's a cool cover. I mean, it's a very clever cover of cinnamon girl. Some of the things they are doing melodically are neat, but the rhythm rhythmically, I think is what's key. You know, the cut time in the middle and some of those aspects. I mean, it, it brings a little sense of, you know, just a little sense of normal because this album is so abnormal and it's like, oh, yeah, these guys are into Neil Young. Oh, yeah, like they're doing cool covers because this is not the only cover they did. And live, they yeah. would do some really interesting covers. I remember the first time we saw them on Dead Again, they opened with a cover of Magical Mystery Tour yeah. by the Beatles. You know, I mean, they, they were always willing to pull out some interesting covers and things like that. So, no, I think it's a really important part of the album. It's not, you know, you're not going to go back and visit it the same way you would visit the other, tr- the, the other original tracks, but... Yeah, I mean, they did the, they did the Beatles to your point. They, they came out, you know, a couple shows and and did in the flesh by Pink Floyd, just right off the bat. That's right. Um, They did that seals and Croft version of summer breeze, which is on bloody kisses. I mean, they, they were constantly making clear of their influences and many of them were not what you'd expect. But then when you really dig into this band, you see that, yeah, not only did they appreciate that stuff, they really baked it into their musical approach. So, you know, while that gave you a little sense of normalcy, uh, we'll get back to some abnormalcy yeah, here yeah, exactly. with the glorious liberation of the people's technocratic Republic of Vinland. Here we go. <laughs> this is just a 
one minute and seven second kind of interlude here, you know, which I don't know, maybe they figured that, you know, cinnamon girl just got people, you know, toe tapping a little too much and they needed to come over the top with uh, something with a very kind of, this seems like musically kind of an ode to their uh, old school fans of those that were into early typo or Peter's previous band uh, carnivore, you know, that kind of did every song sort of sounded like this. So maybe kind of an ode to the old school fans musically there with, I'm just going to say it one more time because I love it. It's the glorious liberation of the people's technocratic Republic of Vinland. But what it really probably serves up more than anything else for those that, uh, that are really into October rust is a little bit of a, uh, just a little appetizer before taking you into one of the more memorable moments, I think for everybody on October rust with Wolf Moon. I mean, the uh, ending of this song is just, I'm going to turn it back up. It's, yeah. So there's Kenny. Um, sorry, I'm having a really hard time turning this one off. It's just kind of not fair. Good. I mean, um, Wolf Moon is a great song leading up, right? With a halftime chorus that is really, really well executed. Very melodic. A, a, a sort of haunting main riff during the verses, but a chorus payoff that is is a bit softer and very, very, you know, sort of digestible from a pop sensibility standpoint. It's a really well put together song, but God, that ending when you get to it and it's just like, I mean, to your point earlier, it's like now they're just showing off. Now they're just being not fair. Good. Wolf moon. I think many would agree. Nub is a, is a real kind of high point and many would consider their favorite on October rust. Where's it rank for you? It's easily one of the favorites. It's like love you to death in the sense of just play it for somebody and they'll like it. I remember, you know, you mentioned our older brother, Scott, but one of our other friends in the music world is, uh, we could say his name because he's an artist, is Joe Phillips, who's in a band, Touch the Clouds. And he's Joe Fai. Yeah. And far between Joe Fai. Joe Fai used to work at a store called Dearborn Music, uh, which was one of our great independent record stores that we had in our local area. And I remember going to visit him in the store one day and, and we were playing for him, October rust, you know, it was like, Hey, and we played Wolf moon. And it was that moment right there where he kind of lit up and Joe yeah. Fi is a true appreciator of music. And, you know, I, I know that he went on and got into typo and listened to the album more and more. And it was Wolf moon, just like for many, it was love you to death. So it is pretty extraordinary that the band bookended the album with these two songs that really anybody could love. Uh, rhythmically, the song is daring. It does some cool stuff. Like you said, the halftime chorus, the outro is, is, you know, just a pinnacle. It, it, it's like the mountaintop of the album when Kenny hits that falsetto voice. And yeah, again, really strong vocals by Peter and 
And good stuff from Josh, especially in the intro, you know, just setting the stage with that keyboard intro is everything. Such a complete song. And you just, you, you get to the end of this, you can't believe that one band could make so many good songs on one album. I mean, there's just, there's so many masterpieces on this album. There's five or six of them on this one record. And just the creativity and vision that went into that is, it's just astounding, you know? And when you get to the end of Wolf Moon, you've really been through something, you know? You sure have. And, uh, and what you realize that it ain't over just yet. Um, because you get the final track, track 14, clocking in at over 10 minutes. Boy, if we weren't atmospheric enough, let's see how much more atmospheric we can be here on Haunted. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's not pretty at all. Um, <laughs> not, yeah. Um, the outro sections, there's Kenny with the higher part. The outro sections on this entire record are just, are really special. You know, they, they were very thoughtful. Peter was very thoughtful about how to construct these songs. Haunted is a, you know, a slow mover. You know, it, it, we were playing you the sort of the ending there, but it builds to it. It builds to it nicely. It's a slow, kind of more sludgy song. It's a waltz. The, it's basically yeah, a waltz. Yeah. It is. It's a slow sort of doom waltz, if there is such a thing. Now there is. That eventually gets you to that place of just pure beauty. And, and what an appropriate way to wrap up to October Rust with something. To your point about dichotomy, you know, you've got the, the, the song title haunted and it's something that has moments where it feels that way but then just ends with this angelic kind of feel to it in a really smart appropriate way to end this out I, it took me a bit to kind of like you said on red water it took me a bit to sort of understand what they were doing on haunted but once you understand it i don't think you can wrap the record up in a bow much better than with this closing track. It completes the circle of October Rust, right? And Wolf Moon could have done the job. I mean, Wolf Moon could have ended any album and, and done an incredible job of it. But then they bring this, this long developing haunted, again, it explodes at the end with this just, you know, delicate yet driving vocal that's over the top of these beautiful lush keyboards. It's just, you know, you almost can't believe that, again, really three guys can produce something so magnificent. And uh, we're just, you know, we're just so lucky to have this album. We really are. Yeah. And how could you say that about any other record? I mean, we're just so lucky <laughs> to have this album available to us. And let's hope it gets passed down and that lives on because it's such a special piece of music. It really is top to bottom. When I called you when Peter died, I remember one of the first things you said, you know, after kind of absorbing just the basic sort of, you know, news of it, you had said like, for you and I, this is kind of like our John Lennon, you know, and 
a big reason for that. It was a very devastating musical loss for, for us. And October Rust has so much to do with that. You know, their catalog continued and they made some great recordings and, you know, we may even date, maybe every 25 episodes, we'll do a typo record or something, you know, maybe we'll look at some of their future work. Even I further. like it. I like that idea. Yeah. Milestone episodes. Right. This was the one that really blew your mind that just these four guys, the four dicks from Brooklyn and this songwriter that sort of came up creatively you know, during his time in carnivore and early typo and a more of a thrash kind of approach could be so thoughtful and so musical and produce an album that is so special. And, uh, and that completes it. So this is actually a pretty good question. Do you think this one mattered nub? That is an interesting question here. I mean, (laughs) of course it mattered to us, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's of course (laughs) clearly, (laughs) but it, I do think it had an influence on metal. Metal was in a weird way in the mid nineties. It really was grunge rewrote a lot of what metal was supposed to be. And I, I do not think we would have all of the melody that we have in today's metal music without typo and without October rust. Bloody kiss is very important as well. Very important. But Bloody Kiss is more important in a mass way. October Rust, those who know and love this album and get it, there's probably no more important album in my collection than October Rust. Do I expect the rest of the world to feel that way? No. Do I wish they would? Hell yes. So sure, it matters to us. Wish it mattered more to others. I think it's the job of those who understand this album and it's greatness. It's true greatness to, to do that, you know, for clay son of T who is now eight years old, one year, a few years back under the Christmas tree for him was a vinyl copy of October rust. And I, I wanted to give that to him because, you know, I thought he would enjoy getting a, his first vinyl record and good thing I got it for him. Cause that thing is like quadrupled in value since I bought it. That's like best uncle ever right there to buy October rust for, you know, his five-year-old nephew. That's pretty well, badass. Cleo will get, wake up one day and put that on his turntable. And hopefully if all goes to plan, be as, <laughs> you know, mind blown as we were when we were 16 years old and maybe just, maybe it'll mean as much to him as it meant to us. And so my answer to your question that I've never given in the 24 episodes we've done so far, I don't know whether it matters or not, but I think it's important that we make this album matter. I think it's that good. I think it's that uh, potentially important. What do you think, T? Does it matter? October Rust? Yeah, I think you said it well. I mean, you want to sort of get frustrated, you know, that recordings like this and pieces of work like this aren't heralded the way they should be, right? But, you know, very often there's a there's a special nature to these things that some get and some don't that's art right i guess the cool thing about this is that you don't have to do too hard of a lap to understand that there are a lot of people there are a lot of people more than you'd think where this album's very important to them and typo had a very very close following you know, the very, very intimate following with its fans. 
they were not selling out arenas. I mean, Harpo's was probably, you know, three fourths full when we were there on Halloween. So, you know, this was not a band that, you know, everybody was going to always latch onto and always understand. And I think it's important to, instead of getting annoyed and frustrated, which sometimes you want to, that something like this doesn't have its place as far as influence and importance that it should to kind of remember and appreciate those that do. And there are plenty, there are plenty, plenty of musicians have talked about this album, plenty of those within the metal community, particularly those during the sort of outpouring of support and gratitude when Peter died, talk about October Rust as being extremely important. So it doesn't have the masses that any of us wish. It doesn't have the um, critical appeal or influential sort of props that it probably deserves. So could it be more important? Should it be more important? Yeah. But there are a lot of people out there that allowed themselves to kind of get hooked into this album and brought into this October Rust world. And I know that they appreciate it as much as we do in many cases. All right. Well, hey, boy, what a what a cliffhanger mystery this <laughs> yeah. one's going to be. But uh, are you putting this one on the turntable, on the turntable, on the turntable, or are you putting this one on the turntable? What Tough do you got, choice. Nub, for your final cut? Tough choice. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take this one to the for sale, but this album sucks. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, this is our early April Fool's joke. This whole episode has just been a bunch of bullshit. We really yeah. hate <laughs> <laughs> It's on the turntable, always will be, and re- will remain there until turntables no longer turn. How about you, T? Well, what are my options? Let's see. Let me look. Uh... On the turntable, on okay. the turntable. Okay. You can go on the turntable. Okay. Or you could go on the turntable with this one. All right. I'm going to put it on the turntable. Um, Good choice. Good choice. So, yeah. I mean, what, what, what can be said beyond what we have already said? So, let's go with a little bit of what's in your head. What do you think, Dub? Let's go. One more time. One more time. Nub, what is in your head, buckaroo? First would be the song Wind of Change by the band Scorpions. I would say easily one of the best Scorpion songs. Is that the German or the English that you're going to go with? Today? I'm going to go with the English. Yeah, English, okay. English, yeah, for right. sure. The song will always remind me of the, uh, the Gulf War in the early 90s because it was used as sort of a theme song for that, which is kind of interesting. But uh, Wind of Change by Scorpions, to me, a song that never gets old. Uh, a little song off an album called Aftertaste by the band Helmet. And that is a song like I care. Yeah. Which should have been a, a stronger single. I feel like for the band, it would have been more of a radio staple to me, but it turned into a little bit more of an album track. From that particular I think record. I did a few episodes ago, exactly what you wanted, which oh, is okay. the song before. Like I care that that's a great sort of back to back right there. Oh, the first fact, four songs on that. Album. Yeah. Really yeah. good. I used to, I used to package together exactly what you wanted into like, I care. Cause you know, the tra- I think it's track three is really up tempo and really aggressive kind of helmet. And, and like, I care is a little bit more uh, slower tempo for those guys, but yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice section of that record after. Absolutely. Me. And third, you know, you're looking for anything just a little optimistic here in old 2020 as we 
bring this really great year down to a close. Oh, best year ever. <laughs> yeah, and that would be one of my favorite songs of the 1980s, which is Broken Wings by Mr. Mister. It's a beauty. Certainly is. T, what is in your head? Well, you know, I'm uh, trying to keep things uh, keep things light. Uh, to your point, during this uh, awesome year that we're having, and in keeping things light, I've decided to go with uh, the opposite of light, which is uh, the Fat Boys, and a great rap song from the uh, late '80s called "The Fat Boys Are Back." Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, they used to rap about food a lot and about like eating donuts and desserts and uh, all kinds of things like that. That was kind of their shtick. But uh, it's a great song, "The Fat Boys Are Back" by. Uh, one of those groups that's, uh, you know, was really great there in the late 80s, the Fat Boys. The second is from uh, from a film. This is a band called the Gleaming Spires. You know where I'm going with this one, Nub? Oh, man, do I ever. So the question is, which one am I going to go with here? Oh, to, to me, it's a pretty obvious choice, but um, we'll, see, we'll see which one you pick. Well, there's two choices here. These are both from the, uh, the film Revenge of the Nerds by the gleaming spires you could either go with are you ready for the sex girls or you could go with what's been in my head that's the all-night party that's the yes the all-night party by the gleaming spires yeah it's a it's a real classic all night all All night night party (laughs) all night gotta last all night at the all night yeah i mean it's a it's a and dude like if there was a karaoke the great track, scenes. I'd play it right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Gleaming Spire's All Night Party isn't a popular karaoke request. And and just quintessential scene in the movie. That's when they cut to Ewan Jefferson and he's at the the tri lambda, the lambda 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 party. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Partying with those moos. Yeah. You moos sure can party. You know? <laughs> Amazing scene. Yeah. This is this is before, you know, they get out the wonder joints. Right. Yes, um, that's right. That's where everyone's right. just kind of sitting around and uh yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. great, great call on uh on uh Ewing Jefferson, uh who's uh the, you know, he and the other guy are just standing there and uh but then they get the wonder joints out and you know Michael Jackson's thriller kicks in. I mean, what a what a scene. That whole that whole party with between the the Trilams and the Moose, that's just special filmmaking right there. <laughs> Absolutely. And the third is a tune. It's a little bit more of a summer tune, but I'm kind of not wanting to, uh, you know, accept the fact that it's uh, 30 degrees and, you know, probably going to be snowing here soon and all that. So uh, one of my favorite summer tunes and uh, the tune that you actually helped introduce me to, and that's by Jay Ferguson doing a little Thunder Island. A great song from the 70s. And that is what is uh, in my head. Nub, what a, what a special album for us. We set a goal that on episode 25, we were going to do it. Uh, We made it. We did it. Uh, We got through it without, I think, gushing too hard. Or did we? I don't know. We gushed pretty hard. But you know what? If there's ever an album worth gushing for, it's this one. So who cares? There's no question. Well, really enjoyed it, Nub. And uh, I think this wasn't one that we needed to listen to too much or do too much homework on. But there's never a bad moment to take a full lap through October rust. And there certainly uh, is never a bad moment to talk through it with you and get your good takes on it. So I uh, really enjoyed it. It was a blast. And uh, anyone who's never experienced this album, just go buy it. You know, you, uh, you will not go wrong. I promise you that. And uh, 
if not, then two twins and album will reimburse you your $5. That's right. We'll pay you back. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know logistically how we'll do that, but we'll find a way. We'll maybe we'll mail you a check or money order. We'll use Bitcoin or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks, Nub, and and thanks to all of you, and and thanks for helping us, you know, uh, get through 25 episodes here, and we've really enjoyed it. Hopefully, you guys have, and here's to the next 25. Uh, But, you know, I guess the first step to that is going to be next week with episode 26. Here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.